0: You can make a lot of money working in television. Um, if you want to go from show to show, and um, if you do a really good job on that show as a producer or, or whatever it is, there'll be another show you can go on to and you can keep forging that path. Television takes up a lot of your time, um, almost all your time when you're making it. So it doesn't leave much space left for you to be creative. I've thought it this way. I'm taking three months off my project to work on your thing and then I get to, get to, get to go back to my normal life. Yeah, I'm, I'm disrupting my normal life for a little bit so I can learn and experience. earn some money and get some experience and do that thing and then I can get back to what I want to do.
1: Hi I'm Dan Brophy and this is The Naked Creative. A creative wellness hack podcast where I talk to everyday makers and doers all about their process in the most practical terms. From how they came to do their thing, to what their day looks like, to how they gather inspiration or overcome blocks. The aim of the game is to demystify creative jobs, to explore the processes that make achieving artistic goals possible for anyone. 2016 has been a tipping point year for documentary maker and content creator Kirk Docker. After years of producing clever, subversive video and TV as a gun for hire, he has championed his own projects, making not one, but two series for ABC. Earlier this year, Hello Stranger, a beautifully shot Vox Pop series, asked everyday Australians personal yet universal questions, and then followed one of them home to document their life. This was followed by the release of You Can't Ask That, where in each episode groups of marginalised Australians, like indigenous people, transgender people, Muslims, obese people, disabled people and sex workers answer audience-submitted questions traditionally deemed too unPC. The intention was to destigmatise, to open up a space for conversation, and to give mainstream audiences a chance to see someone other than those that look just like themselves on TV. It's interesting to note that You Can't Ask That was originally created for the digital streaming platform iView, but ABC decided to screen it on ABC TV. To top it off, Kirk is currently in post-production on the third TV series he's conceived called Demolition Man, which is a reality TV series for Foxhells a and Channel, and he already has an entirely different series in very early stages of development with another network. As a long-time friend, I've been an observer of Kirk's process, and I love talking to Kirk about his attitudes towards cultivating a career in an industry where nothing is certain. I mean, how do you carve out a career in television? How do you support your dreams for the work that you want to create while still earning an income? This and more is what I discuss with Kirk Docker. Katie, this is the, the, the first time we're getting together after a few failed attempts. Yeah. I'd like to start off is by asking when people say to you what do you do what do you tell them
0: well at the moment I'd probably say I'm a TV producer I think previously I broadened that out I was a big slashy Um, and I enjoy being a slashy I I enjoy being a slashy I enjoy creating things so I realised a while ago that you need to create stuff if you've got ideas they need to happen and it doesn't matter how big or how small it is it's good to create something get in the bank it's like when we were creating Vivacool years ago um, which is an online video site 2007 to 2010 one of the feelings you got we were making three pieces of content a week
1: and it was documentary style yeah
0: documentary style vice style you know content content Um, taboo topics, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, we're in our early to mid-twenties, wanted questions, we had questions, we wanted answers. There wasn't the content out there to answer those questions, so we made it. And every time you put one up at nine o'clock in the morning on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it was like handing in an assignment, you know, at school or at uni. And it was like this massive wave of relief of, oh, I got it in. Um, But there's just something to be said for making stuff rather than, here's this idea I've got, talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, boring everyone.
1: Let's make it. And don't we all know, and I'm absolutely guilty of this as well, the steam gets let out of the idea by talking about it so much that by the time it comes to to do the thing, you've already gotten the kudos for the idea to the the degree that you're not actually as excited about doing it. Mm. And a mate of mine's got back from time in the States especially he was living in New York and he said there was just a whole bunch of people who were talking a whole bunch of talk about what they're going to do and he realised after being in this space for a month he was like these people aren't actually doing anything they're actually just loving the idea that they are framing themselves as someone who's going to do this thing yeah admittedly I do like to run ideas past people and I'll
0: run an idea past close friends or people I trust or sometimes whoever, um, to get a gauge of people's reactions to it and whether I take that all on board or not. I'm not really asking whether I should do it or not. I'm just sort of using them as a sounding board. You know, what, what do you think about this? And then you can refine the idea as you do it. But I think it's important to make it. So to come back to your question about what do I call myself, at the moment, because I'm making content, I'd, I'd say I'm a content content maker or a producer or... Um,
1: Creative. I like to create things. And do you think it was a choice to streamline your labelling so as to not suggest that you're... I was speaking to Megan Morton, who's a stylist, in one of the early episodes of the show, and she does about seven or eight things, but she just calls herself a stylist because she says that, you know, at this maybe the era of the slashy is sort of out, and as a trend thing, it's not so cool to say, I do this and then this and then this and then this and then this. Because it seems like you're a jack of all trades and a master of none, but if you just label yourself as one thing but you happen to do seven, you actually up, you're upselling what you're, you're, you're actually capable of doing rather than over promising mm. It's interesting I don't think it's been a conscious effort because it's,
0: it's uh, you know, it sounds cool or anything like that. I think more that's just what I've ended up doing a little bit more of. I think earlier. You're working particularly early when you're making things off with zero cash. You do need to be able to do everything. You do need to be able to edit. You do need to be able to shoot. Um, you do need to be able to pull the strings and pull people in and cast or whatever it is that you need to be able to do. Have those meetings for money. And I think that's important in terms of learning two things. One, how to have a bit of a say in how lots of things go about in the, in the stuff that you're making. And two it means that you can be in that position of being able to, to pitch ideas you can understand an idea wholly not just that one cog you can understand something from in all the cogs how it's turned out though at the moment is that I'm at the position beautifully where I can have someone Aaron Smith at the moment who sh- shoots all you know so many projects that I'm working on who's Vastly superior in every single way that I'll ever be holding a camera so I don't need to be a slashy and hold a camera anymore and Nick McDougall who edited Hello Stranger and um, You Can't Ask That and Now Demolition Man is vastly superior at editing than you know, I, I ever will be or, or want to be so it's so good to be able to have these people around um, working on the projects that you're working on to, to be able to take away some of those slashes and do a better job than you ever would in early days, you sort of have to do everything yourself as you're piecing it all together and trying to make it.
1: Which actually has benefit in that when you are acting as a, a producer or director to be able to relate ideas to these guys, you have held a camera, you have done an edit, so therefore you can instruct them better or get, a, get your ideas across the line to them much more specifically. Yeah. Last night, one of your shows went to air, which was, you can't ask that, What's, what was the elevator pitch for You Can't Ask That? It,
0: all these things are about simple ideas. This is... If we actually managed to turn the, the idea of the show into six words. Um, but essentially it's interviewing stigmatised or marginalised or misunderstood Australians and asking them all the questions you wish you could ask, but you're not normally allowed to ask. And that then, to go one step further, was there's ten episodes, so in each episode we had a different group of people that fitted that category of being stigmatised or marginalised or misunderstood. And so those groups are Muslims, Aboriginals, people in wheelchairs, fat people, sex workers, ex-prisoners, and a few others. And it, within each of those groups we had sort of six to eight people that all... You know, a part of that group, of the, they experience that group and, you know, they've all got their own experiences. So they're quite an individual in that group. So in the transgender group, for example, there's someone who's in their teens who's beginning to transition. There's someone who's in their 70s who transitioned at 65, um, who's a gynecologist. And then there's everyone in between. So it was important that within each group you got a variety of people. Not that that group spoke for that vast, larger group, but you need to hear different experiences And so it meant that people had different points of view. People disagreed with what the other person said. Um, They brought different stories to the table, um, different life experiences because of their age and location and uh, upbringing and all those sorts of things. So within each group we had a variety of people and they all answered the questions.
1: Do you think that... I mean, at the point at which the show was pitched and then created, it seems now that it's come on air and that turnaround is what from... What is that turnaround? From the point at which you... Bring the idea to ABC. What is the turnaround time between pitching the idea to ABC and it going to air? In this instance, in this instance, it was
0: relatively quick. We made two shows at the same time for iView, and you can't ask that went to television and iView and and Hello Stranger um, is on iView. Hello Stranger was an idea that we. Came about from a show that we did called "Hungry Beast" in 2009 to 2011, and it was a segment on that which was a vox pop, and that vox pop was essentially what a vox pop is: is going out and talking to people in the street. But rather than do it the way that is typically done, where you ask about a current news event, politics, um, you know, what do you think about Turnbull, you know, whatever. We said, well, why don't we ask universal questions, questions that every single person that we bump into will have an answer to, um, that then their answer will be drawn from their own life rather than their opinion about world events. And um, they were really fantastic pieces because you got to see these amazing moments of humanity in a couple of minutes. Um, you could watch some person being interviewed on the other side of Australia, and you could connect to their story because they're universal stories, universal truths. So, we created, well, I created with, um, with the guys at Hungry Beast one of those for each episode of Hungry Beast. And we always, when we went out to interview people, and we'd often interview 30, 40, 50 people in a day. And to get people to be really honest, you'd have to build rapport quickly and be on. When you'd meet these people in the street and you asked them these questions uh, and they gave great stuff, often we'd come back to the office and, and it was the, the moments around the questions where you got to know them really quickly. You went, wow. I wish I was interviewing you about your life. It's so fascinating. I only got to interview you about that one question. We did a great job, but wouldn't it be great if I could have done something about all that other stuff? So the idea of Hello Stranger was to do an, you know, an interview about that other stuff, is to interview people in the street, and then when we found someone interesting, follow them home. So that idea had been kicking around for a while. It just had so happened that we bumped into, um, who ended up being our EP at at the ABC Lou Porter at a, a launch of a TV show of a friend of ours and she said how's, you know whatever happened to that idea and um, we'd pitched it to a number of places and, and it's sort of it's about time and place a lot of the time um, is this the right idea for right now it's not whether it's a bad idea it's just is it the right idea for, for now is that your experience TV in general or well media? in my limited experience yes you know if I made vehicle now I don't think it would necessarily work there's an abundance of that sort of stuff. Um, when we we're trying to pitch "Hello Stranger" originally, um, go back to where You came from. Was on television, so the sort of factual programming that was on air was was really dynamic. Whereas "Hello Stranger" isn't necessarily dynamic. It's it's really it's it's about human you know humanity, simple human stories about life. It's not slapping across the face with.
1: Um, you know, with antagonism or anything like that. So, Yeah, by comparison, the You Can't Ask That seems to be so potent now. It seems like mm. the time between you pitching the idea and it going to air, there's even more interest or importance placed around some of those groups for people to be talking, finding out demystifying, destigmatizing Muslims, for example. Mm. It's a really, you know, I feel like the people who would be drawn to the show would be really drawn to the show now.
0: It, the timing of it is really good. So when we started making that... When we, that, that show came about, the ABC, Hello Stranger," you, you Can't Ask That happened at the same time, almost simultaneously. So there was, there was almost no lead-up. So that just, boom, happened. We made them both at once. And both were delivered at the beginning of the year, around March. So you're right. If You Can't Ask That it had gone out then, it may not have been as newsworthy or timely as it is right now, being in between two elections the Australian election and the US election um, there's been a series of attacks around the world there's been a series of um, you know gun related incidents in the US and so it seems like violence is on our screens hate seems to be around a lot there's a lot of news around Pauline Hanson and and the way that our government you know uh, know, our parliament is made up and and the types of people that are in there so it does seem to be timely for a program to come out that just asks people all the questions you want to know, all those hate-filled questions in a lot of ways, and lets them respond in their own way.
1: And interestingly, as it uses hate-filled questions as a tool to establish empathy and yeah. understanding and familiarity. Yeah. Uh,
0: It's, you know, it's a a little bit wrong to say hate-filled because a lot of the questions are curious. Exactly. Um, But, you know, when we asked for... You can't ask that. The the way we got the questions was to ask the public, what do you want to know? And people sent their questions in. There were a lot of questions that were, you know, thinly veiled um, insults wrapped up in a question.
1: Which... But I feel like they're almost... They're almost one and the same in that the, the ones that seem really fueled by hate... That's just curiosity with... The volume ramped up on it, you know. It's exactly. Like, it's exactly. just sort of like it's it's fearful curiosity. Yeah. Or it's like you know, I, I've got my I, I care enough to ask, but I'm also fearful enough of your response that I just need to temper it with an insult so yeah. that you, yeah. to get my head around what I'm what I'm asking. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, like, I there were some funny ones
0: in there that you had to laugh.
1: Yeah, were there any that you're like, oh, I wish we could ask
0: this because it's so far out? Uh, we didn't ask this one, but the one that made us laugh, we it's like, how do you feel about these privileged white people asking you all these questions?
1: <laughs> oh, so like, was, uh, it was a read on you guys. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. And I suppose the alternative is, we, us privileged white people, don't ask these questions, and therefore these people will remain continuously misunderstood yeah. and marginalized. Is that yeah. what you prefer? oh yeah Um, i don't care they don't know us so mm. it doesn't matter it just yes it happens annoyingly that well not
0: annoyingly but it just happens that yeah we have to be we are white and male and you go god look at look at me and aaron making a show there's not much we can do about it but we think it's a great idea so let's just
1: make it yeah well i mean it's such a feat for people who are passionate about programming and um really want to be making stuff especially stuff that that gets people talking and and, and engages a conversation with the general public just to give some idea about where what has cultivated you artistically and also professionally to be able to get you to a stage where you can make a show because i think it's such a mysterious end of the rainbow place for so many people who are for example at film school or even just working non-tv jobs that think you know I've got an idea for a show. Like I, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to make stuff. And I suppose, with the democratization of technology, allowing um, people to have access to the stuff that can allow you to make a show, it seems less baffling now than ever before. But at the same time, you've had a really interesting, winding road. And, and from my observation, as someone who's known you for 12, 13 years, all the things you've been doing have seems to have led you in this to this place. But no, but along the way. There was no guarantees. So, what is it? What is it that you've been doing post high school that's prepped you for this? Did you go to uni? I did go to uni. I studied. I
0: really, I really wanted to work on radio. Uh, while I was at school, I did a whole lot of stuff that that involved making media, making content, speaking on radio a few times, and a number of things like that. So, I was interested in the media. I had my own little radio show when I was quite young. Um, why did you
1: why did you not go into radio?
0: well, I did some stuff on triple R and I really enjoyed it and it just I didn't have any in I didn't know anyone in the industry um, and then, as I was exploring it and trying to just just exist, I think I was always keen to make things anyway so um you know, I was making films post-uni, I was picking up little jobs for people, making content, you know, fudging my way through making videos for people and stuff, even though I didn't really study film or video. Um, and working part-time, and And then I started working at the Reach Foundation. So that sort of happened out of nowhere, probably six months after I finished uni, or maybe even while I was still at uni. Anyway, that ended up completely taking me off making content And I worked at the Reach Foundation, which is a Victorian organisation that works with teenagers. And the basic premise is it's like a, um, it's just like personal development turned up, with the dial turned up. And um, what was great about there was that we were working with Jim Steins, who, who was the, played for Melbourne, but really his footy career took, that wasn't really part of what we did there. It was more about the facilitation, about learning and growing as a person and, and also working with other teenagers who are doing the same thing. And then there was a crew of people who were similar age to me who were going through this process and learning and growing. And as you were doing these programs, Jim gave us an incredible amount of freedom to work in the organisation in different aspects. So whether it be helping run large-scale events, um, making media internally. And so... In a way, I continued to make content and make big creative, but in, in that realm. Um, and while I was there, I started meeting a lot of people who were similar-minded to myself, who inspired me and um, were moving into the media. Sam Kavanagh, Jules Lund. Um, and so they were doing some great stuff. And so the contacts started to build, which was cool. You could start to see into these worlds that you didn't necessarily have access to when you just come out of uni, you don't know how to get inside of and see how that organisation works or hear how it works so I started learning about that sort of stuff
1: and Sam Cavendish producing Hamish and Andy yes. first up was just a bunch of mates banding together to give it a go and then with greater and greater success yes. on radio so instantly, you know, the, the things that you're seeing that are possible to do with friends of your age, are, your mind is expanding, mm. but then I suppose you're still working out how to what forge your place in the media that is using, utilising forms that you're excited about. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that sort of what's happening?
0: It was, and if you think about this, this is the you know early to mid two thousand. So at this point, there's no online content at all. There's no and, YouTube till two thousand and seven. Yeah, that's right. So all you've really still got is your your major TV stations, some some Foxtel stations. Um, so you're still at that point in time, Channel V, and that were you know had some power and then you had radio community radio and that sort of stuff so as we're going through that one of the things that reached that they used to ask of us all the time is what do you really want to do and so i was really faced with that question as i was getting older and time to move out of that organization is what is my calling do i want to work into events do i want to design or make something of some kind or do i want to go back to what i studied and and go back and, and making media
1: and at the point at which you're asking yourself this question is that age 22, 3 that sort of thing I think so I think it's a bit maybe it's about
0: 23, 24 what I went and saw well this will this will right. answer the question because I saw I'd almost stopped making content and then I went and saw The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou right and with my friend Bass Dixon and I think we both walked out of that and went that was so great. How at the time you didn't really know where's Anderson and that type of filmmaking, and you're quite young. And you're like, man, the way that that thing was made. and I remember this particular scene where the helicopter crashes in the water uh, with Owen Wilson in it, and it, it sort of flashes red and water, and it goes silent. And just the way the music was used and the sound effects. It was just, you know, I, I just found that incredible. You know, it was funny, it was interesting, it was weird. And we just sort of came out of that going, man, we need to make stuff again. You know, what happened, what happened to us making stuff? Um, we'd had this unfortunate incident just out of uni where we'd planned to make a horror film, we are really into making horror films, and, um, yeah, it fell apart because a lot of gear went missing on, <laughs> on the night before we were supposed to drive up to the snow to shoot this horror film, and um, it sort of completely quashed that. And uh, the film never got made, and we didn't really make anything since. So we sort of came out from that, going, why don't we make something? And um, so that's when these germs of these ideas started going, what would we make? If we could make stuff, what would we make? What would we want to see? Um, so at the time, there was a lot of really nice publications around, including Vice and others, that were asking quite pointed questions and doing it in quite an antagonising way. And it was amusing. As a kid, when you're reading do's and don'ts for the first time um, and you're reading interviews, really candid interviews, about bikies or drugs, you're like, fuck, oh, this stuff is so great. Why isn't there a video version of this stuff? And at that point in time, where would it go? There's nowhere on television where it would go. And um, and so we started creating it for online. So that's sort of where it came. It purely came a. What's something that we would want to watch that doesn't exist? Let's make it.
1: The technology of 2006 and six seven that you had access to to make Vivacool is so... It's a couple of generations behind what you have available to you now. So the undertaking of pumping out three pieces of content a week to then release on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And each of those pieces were three to five minutes that were edited and sound mixed and shot... With the frequency to be able South to pump weeks. it out. <laughs> yeah, well, it cut together. A Huge undertaking for people who don't really uh, have a huge experience in, in shooting and post-producing mm. stuff. Were you guys just working it out on the fly?
0: Yeah, it, it, it was incredibly exciting making that stuff. To be able to go into someone's house and find out that they are in their 50s and they live 24 hours a day as a master and slave couple and they live five minutes up the road from where you're living to come out of that meeting where you meet these people and they're like yeah we'll do a story to call you know either Ryder or Bass you know who the boys I was making it with and go mate you won't believe where I've just walked out of like that was an exciting phone call to, to make and to, to know that you'd found this source and they'd agreed to do it and you're going to shoot this thing and then put it out to the world our whole thing was about non-judgmental storytelling so Let's do a story on golden showers and rather than be, this is a fucked up thing, go, you know, what's the, what's the... The turn on. Yeah. I want to understand golden showers. Am I missing out on something here? You know, let's, let's meet a dude who, don't we, you know, Ryder interviewed a bloke who was third generation golden, you know, golden showers his old man was into it and his grandfather was into it. Teach me about this. Why is this fantastic? Why do you enjoy it? What is so good about this? And, and through doing that sort of storytelling, it, it, it you know doors open because people realise that you're not there to take the piss out of them or make them look stupid. You're there to understand.
1: For anyone who's interested, can you still find that episode of Vivical City online right now?
0: You can. And what's great about that episode is the writer who's the, the host. And, and a lot of the time, actually, we were off camera as interviewers because we wanted the, the talent to be the, the shining light. Um, rather than some person in front of camera going, hey, look at me, I'm doing this story, and I'm the host, and I'm the focus. In this instance, though, Ryder is very much involved because part two of the story, he sits in the bathtub and an old mate pulls his wang out and, and pisses over Ryder, and, and Ryder gives a really great account of what is it like to be pissed on, you know, the good the good and bad of it. He um, yes, like, you can did, find
1: it. Did you, did you drink soda water today? Tonic water. Tonic water. <laughs> he could,
0: because the guy pissed over his mouth and and Ryder, you know, got a little taste in his mouth and the bloke's like, yeah, yeah, I've I just had a big glass of tonic water. So it, Love it. So but you yes, can... you can find it all on com. It's all there. Quick time player too. We Great. had to post our own stuff because... <laughs> Old
1: um, school.
0: Yeah, we had a whole lot of stuff pulled down from YouTube back way back when, so... um we haven't updated the site and in a lot of ways I'm tempted not to because it, it's like a little snapshot of the internet in the 2007, the 2007 yeah. Um, right. so, so,
1: and do you think It's a bit clunky
0: but it's all there.
1: Having done... and we'll, we'll post on the show page there'll be links as well for anyone who wants to find it nice and easily. But if you were to say what doing 300 episodes allowed for you both personally, professionally and in terms of people believing that you could put your money where your mouth was what did that what was off the, the back end of of that achievement what
0: did I learn from that
1: or what yeah, did I do well, from that well what did you I, mean, I suppose I mean to me it would be a real door opener just showing that you could see a project through so extensively what did people respond to it positively yeah look there was so many great
0: learnings from that project and one was that we made so much content so 300 episodes at five minutes each. You know, that's 30 plus hours of at least a finished content. Um, so many ideas that we just had a massive library of stuff. You knew that you could come up with ideas regularly. You could pull them off. You could research it. You could make it happen. So, um, and with really no one, it's one thing to just call from a website, to call someone up and go, hey, we're a website you've never heard of. Do you want to do a, a story with us about this really sensitive thing that you never talk to anyone about and we'll look after you and get them over the line? Much harder to do that than to call up and say I'm from the ABC with all its wealth of, um, you know, gravitas behind you. So that, just that in itself, to come up with an idea, be excited by that idea, get ex- you know, to, to, and then pull it off, was, you know, was a great learning to know that we could turn things around quickly, that you could put something out that wasn't perfect and that was okay, um, to our storytelling techniques getting much, much better, our idea generation becoming much better. The stuff from the start through the stuff to the end is, is vastly different. So, And to do it really without a whole lot of cash to, to shoot it on any camera we could, to pull favours, all those sorts of things were really integral in terms of learning. How
1: frequently were you updating episodes?
0: Well, we did three episodes a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we'd put them out at nine o'clock in the morning. And as a general rule, sometimes
1: we we fell away from that. But as a general rule, we did that. Would you have a backlog of episodes ready to go? Not really. We did at the start of the year. We had a few
0: extras up our sleeve, Um, but as we got into the year, sometimes we were... There was definitely times when it would be 5 o'clock in the afternoon and we were calling each other going, has anyone got any ideas? And oh, here's one, let's let's go for it. Let's shoot it right now and cut it overnight and put it up at 9 o'clock in the morning. And wow. Yeah, that was sort of part of its charm. It was a bit haphazard. It was a bit slapped together. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of other stuff like it at the time, so it meant that we weren't competing with a lot of stuff. And, uh, and part of its charm wasn't that it was super polished, I think. Um, And when we made a pile of this show for SBS a few years later, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made was that we almost went, oh, wow, we've got some money, we've got time now. And we almost tried to make it too polished. And part of the charm was that it wasn't that polished. It was slapped together, it was put out. And that was part of the fun of it, that it was a bit
1: raw. One thing that I really admire about the most recent shows that have gone to air about Hello Stranger, and you can't ask that, is they put a frame around the subject matter that, could easily, especially Hello Stranger, could easily have fallen into parody because some of the characters that you're representing are so far out that they could be Chris Lilly inventions and they could be caricatures very easily. But yet, you laugh and you cry and you feel for and you celebrate these really, or the audience you get a chance to, these really interesting human beings who are extraordinary in one way or another. Where do you think that ability to represent people in a way that, you know, if you were a master in slave or you were someone who had a specific fetish or thing that that is ultimately you so therefore you're sensitive about it how did you learn to present people's stories in a way that told them without jeopardizing, without sort of making fun of them or, you
0: know I different? think I think really early on we made some rules for Viva Call and those sort of rules almost applied through all the stuff I make and, and one was that we want to treat everyone with respect. We're putting people on camera that don't typically go on camera. So they don't go on camera for a reason. One, they, they're just sort of ordinary punters that don't necessarily think that what their story is, is worthy of being filmed or two, their thing is a bit out there and they think they'll be mocked or mistreated or judged. So we, everything that we made, we, we treated the people with respect and, and we had to convince them that we were going to treat them with respect, and then our, our previous work we could point towards and go, "Hey, look at the other stuff we've done. That's what we're going to do with you." Um, by treating people with respect, obviously, it sounds very obvious, but they'll, they'll come back. You know, people will come back again. But it also means you could present something. We, we didn't want to. We didn't want to judge the experience. We wanted. We were curious. We wanted to find out. So we sort of kept presenters almost always out of our content. We wanted it to be about the subject matter. And by being curious more so than casting judgment... And this is where we really had an issue with what Vice was doing at the time... And we didn't want to go down that path of being scathing and judgmental. as funny as that stuff was, and that was their shtick... Was that we wanted to... By being um, non-judgmental and being curious and understanding... Then you could possibly come away from watching the thing and understand why someone might be into fisting. Like I to... what is it? What am I missing out on? This is what you know. As a 25-year-old, you're like fisting. Like people are doing it, right? Mm. Undoubtedly, a yeah. lot of people are doing it and having a lot of fun doing it. So rather than judge it, what am I missing out on here? Get teach me. Mm. I want to understand what what is this thing that clearly people get an understanding and are into. And that applied across almost everything we did. It's like, teach me. I want to know. Uh, And so in terms of Hello Strange and these new ones, it was the same deal. Explain to me how you've ended up being this person you are. Mm. And and sure, sometimes it comes across as being really funny and comical and, and this sort of stuff. But also, we're very, very aware in the edit that these people have given their trust to us, that... They they have no power out how this thing is going to be put out, so we need to treat them with respect if we want to continue making stuff like this. And um, yeah, so um, that's that's sort of how it, it went. That's that's why the work is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's going to have real impact on the world, it needs to be presented in a way that can. Why why make it unless someone who's not converted can watch it and possibly see something new.
1: Mm. You
0: know, why laugh at someone in a, in, a, in a horrible way when you can laugh with them and, and learn and grow at the same time? It's so much better.
1: Well, it's been roughly 10 years between Viva Cool and now, and okay. in that time, you've jumped, dipped in and out of lots of different projects that have sort of, I feel, led you to this place. But just give, give me an idea of the sort of things you've worked on between Vehicle's 300th and final episode and I mean t- 2016's been from even my observation a real pearl for you in that you've had these two very different uh, shows and different similar in tone but different for what else is on TV in Australia at the moment that have gone to air so far and you've got two more shows that you're involved with in various stages of production one of them's pretty much in the can and about to come on the air soon in Demolition Man and then another show that's sort of very very early stages of development but you know that's a that's a back to back you know run of work of things that you can invest your creative energy into but up until 2016 where have you been investing your energy
0: well you asked this
1: question before and I didn't really answer it properly
0: which was how do you get something up Mm. and I don't necessarily have the answer to that 100% other than that mindset needs to be that I want to something up of my own and how do I get something up of my own so I feel like in this industry you can go multiple ways um, and one is that you know you can make a lot of money working in television um, if you want to go from show to show and um, if you do a really good job on that show as a producer or, or whatever it is there'll be another show you can go on to and you can keep forging that path television takes up a lot of your time um, almost all your time when you're making it so it doesn't leave much space left for you to be creative. So I suppose early on, I, I just was made a decision that that's it. I just want to make my own stuff. So what do I need to do to do that? And and part of it was take jobs on shows so I could learn and grow, but then also make sure I had left enough time to genuinely develop and pitch and try and get things up. And a lot of times they they failed or ideas didn't quite come around or... I made smaller things in between. So there was a long process of continuing to try and work out what might work in this landscape. I continued to meet people, continue to put ideas in front of people. And eventually they started happening. I made a pilot at one point in time. Um,
1: What was
0: the pilot? The pilot was to to make a televised version of Viva Cool. Mm. Um, Other times I got pitch documents, Really developed, we got in front of people and pitched those ideas that didn't quite go ahead. So those things were happening, and there was a constant eye on what's what's the ne- what's the next thing? What's this new idea? Start developing it. So right now, I'm making a show called Demolition Man, and uh, it is you know it's a reality show. It's a it's a show for A um, and E which is a blokey reality station um, that's on Foxtel, that's on the US. And that station typically makes things like uh, Porn Stars, Duck Dynasty, Ice Road Truckers, you know, blokey reality shows where there's danger, there's humour, there's things that can go wrong, there's buying and selling, there's transactions. And I suppose a couple of years ago, I've been really wanting to make my own stuff. And what you realise is that the stuff I, what I want to make, you know, what I would think is good content is often quite niche content. Not everyone wants to watch that. So that's the smartest way to make my own stuff isn't necessarily make the things that only I want to watch. It's it's trying to think broader than okay, well, what are things that are being watched at the moment, and, and these sorts of shows, um, are really, you know, they're great shows. They're watchable things. You can watch ten episodes of American Pickers and. It's entertaining. These guys, you know, they're very well crafted. They're not for everyone, but they were very well crafted. So I suppose this show came out of... If I was to play in this realm, what would it be? And... Laurie, who's the star of Demolition Man, uh, I met during making another show, and he was a standout. Um, He's very funny. He's... Very raw. He um, says what he thinks at all times. He's been doing. He's been pushing his own agenda for his entire life. He's he's a self-made man. He's very intelligent. He understands his field, um, but he you know he can be crass and rude and um, all these things mixed up into one. So um, he and he's what I love most is that he's like a, an Australian character that is disappearing. So, you know, these shows are typically American shows that sometimes come to Australia and they they do the Australian equivalent. Laurie's his own thing. He, there's no American equivalent of it. He does what he does. And we're filming, we're pretty much just going along the ride, hoping to capture this guy's life as best we can. Um, sometimes we get caught behind the eight ball, sometimes we're, we we you know we can read him. Every day he does something different, it's unplanned, we turn the cameras on and... and um, more often than not, something happens that day that is, you know, fascinating. So, and <clears throat> fascinating is a funny thing because you can, um, like, I'm very, very curious. So, watching Laurie pull out old hardwood um, weatherboards from a, a shack that's about to be pulled down and possibly burnt from an old farm, and him saying, "No, no, all these are," are you know you can't get these anymore and his way of recognising something that possibly most of us would look like rubbish is fascinating. He's not necessarily always finding some amazing piece of old artefact or anything like that, but he's finding these these things that typically might be cons- considered rubbish mm. and going, hang on, no, this stuff is, you can't get this stuff anymore. So he, he knows, you know, he won't step over $5 in a row and, and the saying he says often is that if, you know, if that was $10 on the ground you wouldn't step over it so why would you throw it out and you go you can't argue with that
1: so it's a little bit of a, a pickers crossed with like an antiques roadshow potentially with the eye for quality amongst all of the yeah riffraff and then and, and the fact that he's this really outrageous interesting character that you came across and went he's too good to not put a frame around and
0: yeah he's a fantastic interesting guy that's surrounded by interesting people people gravitate towards him and and they they are interesting in their own right so it, it's him and his um, you know without talking it down you know his minions and and they're all they're all fun and great and hard-working and butt heads with him and celebrate with him and
1: so you're living now down in Victoria shooting this show for how many weeks or months we're living on his property so we're Part of the the world.
0: We wake up. We have coffee at just after seven in the morning. We hear what's going on for the day, and we work out how we're going to shoot it. And then we shoot it all day. And at the end of the day, we have a glass of wine, and we go back to our little you know farmhouse, which is on his property. And we go to bed. We debrief, and we work out how the next day is going to work, and and off we go. Um, so it's a it's a fourteen week shoot to shoot ten episodes. And and when you um, say
1: we, who's who's that? So the crew to make
0: a show like this is its quite a simple crew. It's, it has to be relatively light because we are following him along as he does what he does. We're in demolition yards and we're in, in demolition sites. And so there are places that you're not used to filming. You can be in the wrong position as you know things are getting smashed up. So we are a team of two camera operators... Soundo, camera assist slash whatever needs to happen. You know, operate other cameras, do GoPros, that sort of stuff. Uh, a second producer and myself.
1: Five,
0: six, six. six. and and we're we're light enough that we can change. So we can. Some days we might have one camera and another. Day, you know, we'll have a day off, and so we can go. Oh, there's something that we want to shoot on another day. So we don't we don't necessarily shoot seven days a week, but we're flexible that we can. Go. Let's break this down so you can shoot another day, or you, you we stagger so someone shoots later, so we can shoot longer in the day, and just so we're not doing ginormous days. Or sometimes you don't need to have two cameras on certain things, and it we work in quite a flexible way.
1: And so, if you what what led you to the place that you were able to not only find Laurie, but also be in a situation where you could pitch this show around him and come on. And have it be in a sense. Is that your first show that you're? Are you executive producer or that is it your?
0: No, 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 name? no. I'm. F- I'm nowhere near experienced enough to be an executive producer. Um, it's a funny world how this works. It, at the end of the day, I think idea is king, and so if if the idea and it's timing. So the idea has to fit in the... If this show had been pitched in three or four years' time, it might have been a saturation of this type of program and it mightn't have worked. Um, if it had been pitched earlier, um, there mightn't have been a, a space in the programming schedule at this station, they mightn't be able to pitch it. So timing is is part of it. Um, the production company that's making it is, is part of it. The, 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 the team is trusted that it'll be able to pull it off. So me personally walking up and pitching this show... Really, at this point in time, in my career, it's it's very hard to to get that over the line because my only guess is they might look at you and go, well, "How do you? How do we know that this thing can be pulled off? It's quite a big thing to pull off. So, to to be aligned with the right to a, a right company that knows that they can pull it off is important. Um, <clears throat> but pr- prior to this, I was been doing a show at the ABC, which was a, which was a, s- a smaller idea, um, which is for iView View and. Um, which will also some some part of it will be on the main channel. That one again was partly our idea and then partly someone at the ABC's idea. I think really all these things it's uh, you might have an initial idea, but it requires a, a quite a big team to pull it off. So a lot of people's voices start becoming part of this show. It's, it's at this point for me anyway. I'm, mm. I'm not at a stage where I can just go and pitch an idea and make it happen, but. I'm at a point where hopefully I know the right sort of people that I can get the idea in front of them and if it works that I'll be able to get the right team around it to hopefully pitch and if that works and timing's right it might get made Demolition Man, that was a guy that I met a couple of years ago so that just didn't happen just overnight right now, here's this guy I met and here we go, we're making the show that was a guy that, that I met making another show called Aussie Pickers and was like this guy's a this guy's worthy of his own show. He's he's epic. But there, there's you know from that point to it actually getting made, there's a huge big thing. First of all, he's got to want to do it. Second of all, what's there to really film and and you know developing that right out. Thirdly, well, who's going to make it? How am I going to get this in front of someone? Who'd... Then it was, and I'm working all this out as I go and talking to people, making it, you know, having conversations, with my own friends, and my own people in the industry that I've met along the way, and heavily leaning on different people's experiences, EPs and other people I know and having conversations and saying, hey, what do you reckon I should do? Who should should I put in front of? Ultimately, um, I took it to a production company that I thought would be um, a really nice fit. Um, They weren't necessarily convinced at the time, but it was when we shot a little piece of content and went, here's the guy. Then everyone went, ah, we get it, right. From then, it was over to them and they sold the idea and then I came back and worked on it. Now that's not going to be the exact same path for everything. That just happened to be the path for that one.
1: Did you have contacts at that production company before you reached out to them? I, I did,
0: but again, it was a fortuitous thing where the idea I spoke to one of the, you know, one of the bosses of the company at a lunch, happened to see him at the lunch, knew that he liked um, going to the auctions. Uh, which is, you know, I, I didn't really know Nick so well and I used to see him at the auctions a, f- a few times when I was making Aussie Pickers, so I knew he liked that world. So I thought he was the right person to say, hey, this guy's in that world. Um, I know you sort of like that
1: stuff. and
0: uh, I'd like to talk to you about this idea around that.
1: Aussie Pickers is a job you would have taken because it was somewhat in your wheelhouse, but not because you would have thought, oh my God, that's that's my ideal TV industry job. But through that, you met this guy who ended up being the, the protagonist of this series that you've been a huge part of creating to be fair, I was a bit anti reality show um, ist i was
0: I was reality show I so you'd say it uh, you know I judged i i didn't want to work on those shows I was like no i'm going to forge ahead i'm not going to work on those shows i'm going to make my own stuff, but it got to a point where I was really desperate for cash and um, luckily, a friend of mine who was the production manager on the show, Sue, called me and said, hey, they're looking for a producer on this show. They haven't been able to find someone. Do you want to come in? Um, and they took a chance on me, really. I hadn't really made that so much of that sort of programming. What they what they knew on that show was that they were going to be dealing with offbeat characters, which is what I could do. They'll be working with new talent um, who are going to be the hosts of the show, which I felt like I could do. But... Working in that reality TV machine, I hadn't really done. So it was a real big eye-opener for me to do that. Um, and I think look, a lot of people do things all the time where you, you you work on something that you don't necessarily 100% know how to do, but you can sort of you know, forge your way through regardless, ask questions and try and learn as fast as you can to do it. But I knew I'd be able to get good stuff out of people. I've always known I could get good stuff out of people, so I knew you could do that. How the framework of those types of shows being made... Um, I didn't really know, so I was learning on the fly. You know, I remember crooking up with the first shoot. We went away for a two-week shoot, and you know, there's 10 of us, and I was like, well, so what does the producer do in this instance? Do you have to tell everyone what you're doing today? You know, is, it, is it a brief? Like, I, I, I didn't really know. It was quite embarrassing. So all that was a really fast, steep learning curve in terms of how that thing got made, and really was the best thing for me in the end was to work on a show like that that I didn't really want to work on but um, at the same time um, there was a heap of a heap of learning for me to have from that. So yeah, I didn't really want to do it but it was the perfect vehicle for me really talking to a wacky old dude to have these collections of stuff. I loved it mm. and um, and really I, I struggled making that show and particularly in the edit, I didn't really know how to... Part of my job was to post-produce a, a one-hour episode of this show and um, I, I didn't really know how to do it. It was really hard and I got halfway through it and, I, and my EP said to me, you know what, I don't know if this is the right fit for you. I think this is maybe... I might finish you up. Um, sorry, we thought you could do it, but you can't. And um, <laughs> what, a, what a blow to... Was that, was that a blow to your confidence? Yeah, I,
1: I was shocked. And, but it was fair. I was struggling with it. Um, and As, I, I suppose you brought with you this huge wealth of experience getting good stuff from talent in, in, the, in the interview stage and plus I was so like arrogant that oh I don't want to work in this, these these sorts of shows you know you weren't shit. overtly familiar with the form because you weren't watching a bunch of it because you didn't like it uh, yeah
0: well you know I watched heaps of
1: Ameri- American
0: figures in the lead up to it so I sort of t- totally got it but what I didn't really get and this is this was a really really big learning is that uh, and I learned a lot about story about story and how it came together um, and, and about how to piece together a story and I didn't and I'm still learning shitloads about that at the moment. Um, but I didn't really get that in reality, we're not making documentary. We're making a... We, we can weave this story. We can take that bit from the end and put it in the front and move it around because we're making yes. entertainment that's, that's based off a factual moment. But that's the type of television. And, and it's not to be shied away from. It makes it better. Mm. If you're just showing what happened from start to end in the day, they're curated shoots anyway you're not making a documentary so as soon as i sort of that that idea got to me that no no no, you don't have to do it in the order of what happened you can flip and move and make it whatever that was a big light bulb moment for me in terms of making that sort of content and then when i was sort of asked you can finish up i was like Ugh, can't believe that spoke to some friends um just sort of realized that i could actually do it and stop stop finding it so hard and just work out how to actually do it um And then from then on, working with the editors made much better stuff and and ultimately did stay on the show. And then to the second season of it. So it was the real kick up the pants that I needed at the time just to sort of go, hang on, mate. You know, you need to sharpen up a little bit and learn and not be so arrogant about all this. And, and
1: And also, you probably went from being the biggest, you know, cog in your own machine to then being a much smaller cog in a much bigger machine. And it's, you know, it's hard to imagine changing your mindset to go back to being completely open to learning even though you've got a role that you know, people are taking direction from you
0: you're exactly right when you're making your own stuff and this is what I was like no I'm going to make my own things I'm going to forge my own path I'm going to make my own shows when you're making your own stuff yeah you are the boss all the time um, and you're hiring people who are agreeing with your vision and you might discuss it but you're sort of the one leading the charge yeah suddenly you're going in there and that's right you're a small cock and that's really great that was very very important for me to do that and it's one of those things, I remember asking a few people when I was quite youngish in the industry, if you were me right now, what would you do? You know where I want to get to, what would you do? And no one really said to me, hey, you should go and do work on a couple of big shows, see how those things work, um, because you'll get invaluable experience from that, and you may not like what the show is. It may not be the sort of programming that you want to put out to the world, but you'll learn a heap of stuff, you'll make contacts, and... Um, yeah you'll potentially get a name um you'll just learn how big companies work there's a heap of great things that you get from working on on show so i would highly recommend that if you're you know if you're at union you're going how do i make my own things make sure you start make you know like i said before make stuff whether it's your own stuff and smaller things or whether you get on board something um the trick is once you get on board and into that machine can you let it go to go and make your own stuff again if you want to or do you get stuck in that machine and stuck in that nice nice spot of earning a lot
1: of money Yep, yeah, which is a definite thing that a lot you meet a lot of people along the way who really aspire to make their own stuff and they're creatively creatively satisfied enough through what they're doing for the company that then and you know having a nice steady income is so nice that they don't stop and go okay I'm going to take six months off now to make that thing or even I'm going to dedicate my weekends to making that thing that I'm really passionate about. Mm. All the while, I've got my. I think that is the talent for the talent. Yeah, I didn't even think of it, it as
0: taking six months off. I thought it this way: I'm taking three months off my project to work on your thing, mm. and then I get to get, to get to go back to my normal life. Yeah, I'm I'm disrupting my normal life for a little bit so I can it's learn and experience. earn some money and get some experience and do that thing, and then I can get back to what mm. I want to do. Mm. So, and I and I think that's actually a really different mindset than. I'm going to take six months off earning heaps of cash to go and quickly try and make something of my own yeah, um, perfect. because they don't happen in six months they don't happen in three months they're an evolving thing that happen over time and you, have, you want to have multiple things going at once you want to have multiple conversations you want new germs popping up these ideas I have right now that I've had for, for 12 months they're just sitting there constantly ticking over in my mind and, and every now and then a moment will pop up where you're like Ah, oh, could this be the moment where I do this Thing they develop it further or not. Um, so,
1: yeah. Katie, thanks so much. I, I feel like I am better equipped <laughs> now to go and get stuck into my next round of projecting. But that was really good. Thank you. Uh, hopefully, that all makes sense. Um, it's all there. All right. Thank you, too. No problems. So my big takeaways from chatting with Kirk were around that really common theme that comes up quite a lot in this podcast, which is having a talent for your talent, because it seems like it's not just enough to be good at making something in order to be a creative. These days, you actually have to be good at creating the lifestyle that facilitates doing the thing you're passionate about. Kirk's decision early on to make his own content has led to him forging a career that's been not so templated by what other people have done because he ended up wanting to do something that no one he knew had done before his attitude was less about taking time out from full-time work to do his own thing actually pretty much the opposite he would take time out from doing his own thing to occasionally take jobs to work for other people but usually always within fields that were relevant to his passions and always with the intention of prioritizing the return to his own process. Maybe the way an avid painter or novelist would have a daily practice that was occasionally interrupted by money jobs. On a personal note, it's been incredibly inspirational to see his journey come to fruition this year. You know, this friend is someone who I've, I've taken a lot of inspiration from in order to work at how to structure my own lifestyle. He's also really good at absorbing a lot of inspiration within a certain area that he needs to create work on. The type of stuff he makes varies so wildly that he fills his well by absorbing as much inspiration as possible on a certain topic, generally just gravitating towards things he's turned on by and excited by. And off the back of that, he's able to come up with really ingenious new ideas within the space just because he has a lot of reference points based on how much stuff he consumes. That's all for this week on The Naked Creative. Don't forget to check out the show pages at www.thenakedcreativeshow.com For this week's show, Kirk has very generously listed five key areas of inspiration for him. And there are a couple of really good examples from books he's currently loving reading, documentaries he's really turned on by at the moment and podcasts he's loving listening to. I'm Dan Brophy and this has been The Naked Creative Show.